Listen to these words from Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the, be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good to see everybody. Thank you for being here today. Um, I have to tell you that I was blessed this last week. And it was because uh, Travis Kelsey, of all people, blessed me. Can you imagine that? Uh, not only is he just a cool player on my favorite team, but he was also running a promotion this last week to give away $250,000 worth of Bitcoin. And uh, all you had to do was go out on Twitter and tweet uh, certain things, and you were in, in the uh, race to win some Bitcoin, okay? And so uh, I actually came out of Twitter retirement. I have not tweeted something since 2018. Um, but Travis Kelsey brought, brought me out, and, and I tweeted whatever, and I won $100 of Bitcoin from Travis Kelsey this last week. Now, long story short, the reason I won was because of my wife, because she's really the super fan of Travis Kelsey in our household. And the day before I won, she found out about this promotion, and she put her, did, did her tweets, and she won, but she only got $10. I got 100 yeah! Now, how much that $100 worth of Bitcoin will be worth? Uh, the jury's still out on that. But I felt blessed, right? Now, as I was thinking about that and what we were going to talk about today, I thought uh, there's a little challenge and to me and probably to you too. Why does it take some form of money, whether it's Bitcoin or whatever, to feel blessed sometimes? Sometimes it, when, we, when we put blessed into this material category, material possession category, maybe we are shortchanging what it means to be blessed. And so there's a great hymn of the faith that we're looking at today uh, that talks about what it really means to be blessed. And we just sang it there at the end of our worship set. It, the, the hymn is what we simply call it the doxology. It's familiar to most of us. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And one of my favorite memories of the doxology was when I was uh, in high school. And Oral Hershiser, if, if you remember him, he pitched for the Dodgers. He was actually on the Johnny Carson show. Um, some of you uh, remember that probably if you're, you know, maybe in high school. Um, and He's on the Johnny, Johnny Carson show, The Tonight Show, and he's a World Series winning pitcher. And I don't really remember what the conversation was, but all of a sudden I remember looking up because Oral Hershiser has broken out in song and what he's singing right there on The Tonight Show, right in the chair besides Johnny Carson, is the doxology. Praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And the audience was stunned when he got done. They really didn't know how to react, but then, then there was a bunch of applause, and Johnny Carson himself was so moved by that moment that he included that clip 
of Oral Hershiser singing the doxology in his best ever segments that ran when he retired from The Tonight Show. And those, those words that Oral Hershiser sang, the doxology, before a world audience, he, they told us volumes about who Oral Hershiser was and what he believed. They told us that it's not about the blessings of baseball. It's not a Cy Young Award. It's not three times being an all-star. It's not a gold glove. It's not being an MVP. It's not being a World Series champion. Those are blessings, but they're not the greatest ones. The greatest ones come from God. Those are the real ones, and those are the ones worth singing about. And so the words that he sung were originally penned by a guy named Thomas Kent. And uh, here's a picture of Thomas Kent. I think this is his senior picture, actually. Um, and Thomas Ken was called the England's first hymnist. He was a chaplain at a boys' school, and he wanted a way to encourage the devotional habits of his students in the school. And so he wrote three hymns. Now, this was a really big deal because at the time, English hymns were not even a thing. Uh, when you went to church in that day, you sang psalms. That's what was sung. Hymns were not a part of the, the worship. Some of you are like, I can't imagine hymns not being a part of worship. Yeah, uh, for about 1,600 years. <laughs> Sometimes the hymns were not a part of worship. Uh, psalms were the main thing that were sung. And so he wrote these hymns, first ever in, in England, that were at the time out of bounds for the culture. He wrote them to help his students. And he said, he even told them, I want you to go to your rooms privately and use these hymns yourself. Now, that seems like a very dead poet society thing going on, like captain, oh my captain, like that. Uh, and the three hymns were to be sung in your room privately at three different times of the day. In the morning, when you get up at midday, which was probably uh, early evening, and then the last at midnight if you weren't sleeping yet, which what teenager is, right? And so each of these hymns had... 13 stanzas each. Here's, here's a stanza from the morning hymn. It goes this way. Awake, my soul, and with the sun, thy daily stage of duty run. Shake off dull sloth and joyful rise to pay thy morning sacrifice. Here's one from the evening hymn. All praise to thee, my God, this night for all the blessings of the light. Keep me, oh, keep me, King of kings, beneath thine own almighty wings. And then each of the three hymns concluded with the same stanza. They ended this way. Praise God to whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And Thomas Ken's goal with these first ever English hymns was to keep his students aware of the true blessings in life and where true blessings really come from. They are the things that are beyond the dollar, beyond Bitcoin. They, they can never be found in material possessions. Those kind of blessings, the real ones, only come from God himself. And it's hard to imagine that our text today that we just read wasn't in Thomas Kinn's mind when he wrote about our God being the source of every blessing in life. And Paul writes these words in Ephesians. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And in the following 
verses, Paul spells out um, just what those blessings are. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. If we really take time with these verses, we can come up with no less than eight spiritual blessings that flow to us from God himself, and they are ours to claim at every moment. Now, there's not time for eight, and so I'm going to do three, and some of you are thinking, I don't think there's going to be time for three. Uh, but that's what we're going to do. And I chose these three because they come directly out of the culture that Paul is writing to. Paul picks these pictures with intention because they speak directly to the people that he's writing to. He's writing to Christians in the, in the city of Ephesus. Um, it's around 61 AD when he writes these words. It's about three decades after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And if you're looking at a modern map, the city of Ephesus would be in western Turkey, where western Turkey is now. And probably, uh, let's just do a little tour of Ephesus. Probably the greatest structure was the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. Uh, it was known by both names because uh, one set of people worshipped her as Greek and one set of people worshipped her, worshipped her as Romans. And so, this temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Its foot, footprint was the size of a football field. And it had 127 60-foot marble pillars around its perimeter supporting its structure. It was probably the largest building in the world at that time. And all that is left of it today is just a part of one of those 127 marble pillars. Ephesus also had a theater. Uh, the theater was not the largest in Rome, but it could still hold 25,000 people. And then Ephesus also had the Agora. The Agora was a triple archway that led into the marketplace at Ephesus. And at the marketplace, you could buy anything. Uh, the marketplace was the size of two football fields placed side by side. And so in, it would be the Amazon marketplace without the, uh, without the internet. That's what's going on. And so this place called Ephesus is not some remote outpost with, some, with a couple of dusty streets and a saloon. It is not that. It is, it is the fourth largest city on the planet in its day. Um, the fourth largest city in our world has 22 million people in it. And so you can equate it to that. It didn't have near that many people. But Paul would have arrived in Ephesus about 53 AD, and he would have talked to anybody that he could about the story of Jesus, that Jesus was sent by God as a man to earth, that he lived a perfect life, that he sacrificed that life on a cross for, to a holy God for unholy people. And then they took his dead body from that cross, and they buried it in a tomb, but his body did not stay there. He came back from the dead very much alive, and he offers that same kind of life beyond the grave to anybody who will give their allegiance to him. And so, not too long after that, Ephesus has a church. And Paul stays with this church in Ephesus that he started for two years, and then he leaves to start other churches. And when he left, what, what, what he had were people that believed in Jesus. They were new followers of Jesus. They were saved people. But he also left people who had very old habits. They had very ingrained ways of living when it came to sex and money and speech and relationships. And 
they found themselves falling back into these same ingrained patterns. And so just a few years after he left, Paul writes this letter back to the Ephesian Christians to refresh their memories about what it really means to follow Jesus. And the amazing thing is how he begins. He knows there's some behavioral issues going on. People are slipping. They're behaving badly. But he doesn't go after their behavior immediately. He'll get to it in the later chapters, but he begins totally different. In, right off the bat, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, he just says over and over, I want you to remember who you are. Remember who you are. Remember who you are. Because Paul knew this, that the way we behave is chained to the way we think. What we think about ourselves determines the steps that we take in life. And so Paul gives these struggling people um, images that they can relate to that explain how much God has blessed us. The first image, let's talk about those, is the image of adoption. Here's what Paul, Paul writes in verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, just read the word destined, he destined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Note that in love, he made a way through Jesus that everyone in this room can be adopted into the family of God. We can have a true connection to God, and it doesn't come by way of us proving ourselves. Instead, it comes by way of Jesus Christ offering himself. What Jesus did is the key to our adoption into God's family. And in order to really understand this, we have to see this picture like the Ephesian readers would have seen it when they first read these words. And so we have to go back to the theater in Ephesus. One of the Greek plays that might have taken place in this theater was uh, a play called Oedipus Rex. And some of you might know the outline to, to the play Oedipus Rex. Uh, King Laius and Queen Jocasta of Thebes have been warned of... Uh, that they will have a son, and that son will bring them all kinds of trouble. And so, when that son is born, King Laius takes the baby, he binds its feet together, and he gives the baby to a shepherd, To and he says to the shepherd, I want you to take the baby up on a mountain nearby, and I want you to leave it to die. The shepherd cannot bring himself to do this. And so he takes the baby and instead of taking out on the mountain and leaving it, he sends it to a faraway village so that he doesn't have to kill him. And the baby in that faraway place is given the name Oedipus, which means swollen feet, because they surely were. His feet had been bound, right? And Oedipus ends up being raised by another king, the king of Corinth. And so he actually lives, he doesn't die, and the prophecy that everyone is trying to avoid actually comes true in the end. And that's pretty much the story. Rex means king, and so we have the play Swollen Feet King, all right? Famous. Now, the crazy thing about this time in Ephesus is that when this play is being performed and they come to the part where King Laius abandons his son to die, that doesn't shock anybody. Child abandonment was a thing 
in ancient Rome. There are lots of debates about how common it was, but all sorts of people comment about it, and so we have reason to believe that it was at least common. We have a letter from a Roman military official off on some assignment, and he's writing back to his pregnant wife. And just matter-of-factly, almost in the middle of another thought, he says, by the way, if the baby's a boy, keep it, but if it's not, turn it out. What did he mean by that? He meant for, it to her, for her to abandon it. In Roman culture, when a baby was born, it was set at the father's feet, and the father either picked it up, and thereby he claimed it, or he turned and walked away, rejecting it. And the reasons could be trivial. If he walked away, the baby was rarely killed. Instead, the child would be taken out, left alone, exposed to the elements so that the gods could decide his fate. Babies were taken to the marketplace in Ephesus and left. Outside the city gates of Ephesus, there was a garbage dump where babies would be taken and left. And if those babies were lucky, somebody would come along. And somebody would take them and raise them and they would live, but they would be usually raised in order to be a slave or a prostitute. But even so, those were the lucky ones. And Paul writes in the very first words of this letter to people who have this kind of abandonment ingrained in their way of life. And he says this, in Jesus, you've been adopted. If you know Jesus, You are no longer defined by who threw you out, but by who took you in. Jesus found you discarded by your sin. Jesus found you exposed to the elements of this world. And here's what he did. He picked you out, and he picked you up, and he took you home. Have you been thrown out? Have you ever been dumped? Maybe you've been abandoned by a fiancé. Maybe you've been abandoned by a spouse. Maybe you've been dumped by a kid who shut you out. Maybe you've been dumped by a parent who walked away. Maybe it was a company that said, we care for you. But they really didn't, did they? Maybe it's a business partner that you trusted. Anybody been dumped? Paul says, to those of us who have, if you have responded to the voice of Jesus, then you, rem- you need to remember that something happened at that point. He picked you out, he picked you up, and he brought you home. He adopted you, and you are no longer defined by who threw you out, but by who took you in. The adoption process that goes on here uh, shows us that we're not all children of God just automatically by our nature. That's not how adoption goes. The adoption process takes desire. It takes action. To be adopted means that somebody else went through a legal process and took legal action in order to make somebody else a part of their family. And what being adopted means is that God took that action for you and for me so that we could be his. That's real blessing. I want you to say this with me. He adopted me. Say it with me. He adopted me. One more time. He adopted me. 
This is all Paul does in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Remember who you are, and the first thing you need to remember is you are adopted. Then the next powerful image that he gives us is the image of redemption. Redemption. The words, the word sounds churchy, right? Uh, redemption. We don't use that much in our everyday vernacular. It's a weighty theological term, but, but it's also a term from the business world at that time. To redeem something just means to buy it or to buy it back. Uh, there was a, a time in another life that I owned a vehicle that had Kansas plates, but at the time I lived in Missouri. And the tags had expired in Kansas, and I hadn't gotten to the Missouri DMV yet, and so guess what? The fine people of Missouri took my car. <laughs> I came home one night, it's gone. So what I do? Well, I had to go down to the station, and apparently there was this big lot where they keep all of the cars that they take from Kansas residents, and I had to play an exorbitant amount of money, more than $100 worth of Bitcoin, and when I did, they stamped redeemed on a little piece of paper and gave me my car back. Now, the car was always mine, right? But it was lost to me, and so I had to buy it back. That's redemption. And here's what Paul writes, verse 7. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Paul points out that we have been redeemed. We have been bought. We have been bought back. How? By the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross. And again, look, let's look at this picture, the way that those first believers in Ephesus would have seen this in, the, in a first century lens. Ephesus is one of the largest slave trading markets in the Roman world. In the marketplace, you could not only find spices from the east or the latest fashions from Rome, but you could also buy people. Some references claim that between 100 BC and 100 AD, turn to your neighbor and say that means 200 years. That's 200 years. For 200 years, Ephesus was the center of slave trade in the Roman Empire. A quarter of the entire population of Ephesus would have been slaves. And so Paul came and he preached in Ephesus and he preached Jesus and he planted a church in the, the middle of the most robust slave trading spot on the planet. And that means that he's got people in this new church who would have been slaves. They knew what it was like to be bought and to be sold. And so I want you to imagine that you're in church at Ephesus and maybe you're having a conversation with somebody you haven't met before. This is a new group of believers to you. And you say something, you go up to somebody and you say, hey, I'm Bob and I sell fidget spinners in the marketplace and I found about Jesus and that's why I'm here. Uh, I give my life to him. I'm glad to be here. What's your name? And the person in front of you says, oh, I'm Tom. And you say, cool, what do you do, Tom? Well, I do whatever I'm told to do because I'm a slave. And I belong to Zeninus. Huh. And then you notice that there's a collar that is around Tom's neck, and it's not just for church. It has this inscription. It's a real thing. The inscription on the collar reads this way. If I have fled... Take me to my master, Zinonus, and you will earn gold coin. Tom never gets to take that collar off because he's enslaved. 
And Paul says, we've been redeemed. And what that implies is that we needed redeeming. We needed bought back in the first place. And what that means is that we are all slaves. We all belong to someone. We could say it this way, that we're all living for something. There's something that we're chasing after in life that we think will make life meaningful and beautiful. We all wear a collar. And that collar says something like this. I'm living for my career. It says, I'm living for my kids. It says, I'm living for my retirement. It says, I'm living to make a difference. All of those things, okay, what we need to realize is that whatever that thing is around our neck, however our collar reads, that's our master. We're all slaves to something. And maybe Tom was one of the lucky kids rescued from the dump. Maybe someone raised him, but they raised him to be a slave, and, and he was, and and, and maybe he's a teenager and, and that family decides to take him to the marketplace and sell him. And Zynonus was in the marketplace at that time. And so Tom was purchased. He was redeemed. He was bought. And he went from one master so he could serve another master. And redemption means in part that we are all slaves and that we will only ever be slaves. Paul writes and says to all of those in Ephesus who know real slavery and to all of those in Fort Scott, Kansas who haven't physically been made a slave, but we know that we're slaves all the same, right? He says, God bought us. He bought us back by the blood of Jesus. We were lost to God because of our sin and God showed up and he bought us back and this is the best news ever. Now you say, wait a minute, hold on. I was a slave to something and now God buys me and I'm just a slave to God? Yes, that is incredibly good news. It might seem that you're just trading one owner for another, but the reality is that you have been bought, when you have been bought by God, by the only master who will never enslave you. God is the only master who will pay for your sin. All those other masters, your career, your children, your money, your status, none of those masters will lift a finger for your sin, let alone pay for it. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It wasn't money that bought us back. It was Jesus and his blood hung on the cross that paid the adoption fees so that we could be a part of God's family. And to the slaves, Paul writes, I want you to remember this. I want you to remember who you are. Someone else bought you. You are redeemed. And you are no longer defined by what you owe, but by what has already been paid. Jesus bought you, and you're his. Remember who you are. So here's what I want you to say with me. Say, he adopted me. He adopted me. Now this, he paid for me. One more time. He paid for me. I didn't lead that correctly. Let's do this. He adopted me. Now he paid for me. That went a little better. One more picture that is really powerful for us today. And let's go back to the conversation with Tom. As you're talking with this slave Tom, you notice that he also, in addition to the collar, he has a tattoo on his neck. And he has a, an earring in his ear. 
And you say, hey, those, those are pretty cool. What's, what's the story? And he looks at, me, at you and he says, he says, you're not from around here, right? Uh, those are also to show who I belong to. They are my master's marks on me. See, in some form or another, all slaves were branded with the family seal of the estate that they belonged to. That's the picture that Paul uses. It's the third image. It's the image of sealing. And here's the text. Paul says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Paul is reminding the Ephesian Christians of their story. Do you remember when I came to Ephesus? Do you remember when I told you about Jesus and you responded in faith and repentance? And do you remember when you were baptized? Do you remember that day? Do you recall that decision? You need to because it was then when you went under the water to accept Jesus that the Holy Spirit came into your life and marked you with a seal that means that you are God's. And that seal is no less a mark of ownership. Maybe uh, when you think seal, you've, uh, you think about a paper document being folded and, and sealed by hot wax. The, the wax is poured onto the paper where it connects and, and then it's stamped maybe uh, with a stamp or maybe some, sometimes a ring and it's pressed into the hot wax making an impression of maybe a family crest or some kind of seal. And that document then cannot be opened without breaking that wax seal. So whoever gets that letter knows whether somebody else has been reading the mail or not. Now that kind of seal doesn't work on livestock, does it? And so what people started doing was they started branding animals with hot irons. A brand is also a seal. It's a mark of ownership. Likewise, hot wax doesn't work too well on people. And so when people came to own other people in places like Ephesus, they began to brand them as well, sometimes even with that same hot iron, but sometimes also with ink. Roman soldiers were actually marked with four letters tattooed on their arms, S-P-Q-R. And the letters marked a person as a Roman soldier in service of the emperor of Rome. It was a mark of service. And soldiers were tattooed. Captives and slaves were branded or tattooed. Sometimes slaves had their ears pierced with an awl. A, uh, there's a picture of a bone awl there um, that they would... And they would wear a certain earring to show who they belonged to and who owned them. And so Paul is writing to a people who are literally sealed and marked and tattooed to show who owns them, who has purchased them, and to whom they belong. And he writes this, do you realize that when you made Jesus Lord, that the Holy Spirit did the same thing in your life. He sealed you. He marked you. He tattooed you. But this seal isn't one of bondage. It's a seal of promise. It's God's voice saying, you're mine. I've adopted you. You are mine. And the Holy Spirit in you and for you is God's promise that he is with you. And Paul writes to these people and says, you need to know that. You have been sealed. You've been marked as one of God's sons. And so you are no longer defined by an owner wanting something from you, but by an owner wanting something for you. 
So say this with me. He adopted me. He paid for me. And then this. He marked me as his own. He marked me as his own. And all of this means that you belong. You belong. There's one caveat that Paul makes all the way throughout this passage. And it's this, that all of this blessing that is accomplished for us is accomplished for us one way, in Christ. Every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ. He chose us in Christ. He destined us to be adopted through Jesus Christ. He freely lavishes grace on the one that he loves. He redeemed us in him. He revealed the mystery of his will. He purposed in Christ. We hope in Christ. We were included in Christ. We were marked in him, in Christ, with a seal. Whatever else a Christian is, of this there is no doubt. A Christian is somebody who is in Christ. And so are you. That's the question. In Christ means that you have come to a point where you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, the Lord of all. You have come to him through faith, in repentance, in baptism. Are you in Christ today? Because you can be. And when you are, you have all of those blessings that flow from the throne of God. Then watch this. Last little point I'll make today. Who is it that gives the blessing of adopting me into his family? It's the Father. Who is it that gives me the blessing of paying the sin debt that I owe? It's the Son. And who is it that gives me the blessing of sealing me with a promise that I belong to God? It's the Holy Spirit. And in this first ever hymn called the doxology that is all about blessing which just means praise and glory to God. That's what doxology means. What is the last line that we sing? Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Your job today is to claim the blessings that he gives. Would you repeat with me? He adopted me. He paid for me. He marked me as his own.